Hello, welcome to the Right Track Podcast. My name is Valencia Stokes and I am your host. The Right Track Podcast is about having interesting conversations with writers and other visionaries that you're bound to meet along the journey. Because this is the fantasy world that you enter when you pick up that pen and decide that you want to make your mark. You're the protagonist and this is your map to get you on the right track. Hello, welcome to episode eight of the Right Track Podcast. I've been so excited to do this episode. It's uh, it's a topic that I've really been wanting to talk about for a long time now. And hopefully we can tackle it because I have a great panel today. So could you please introduce yourselves? Sure. My name is um, Kat Bowser. Um, I'm, a, I'm a writer. I'm working on my first novel. I'm also a licensed therapist in the state of Arizona. Uh, and my name's Victoria Maxwell, and I'm a playwright and an actor and a mental health speaker. And I live on the beautiful Sunshine Coast in British Columbia in Canada. Oh, wow. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> it, is, it does actually. sound beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I Okay, we also have another guest, but she's going to be joining us a little bit later. So we're just going to jump into it right now. So I want to know what has been your journey just in the your both in the mental health space. And I just want to know how you got there. Okay. Um, well, I actually, my, my journey into the uh, career of mental health is actually kind of a weird one because it actually started honest to God when I was about sixth grade mm-hmm. when I, because I used to watch, you know, all those cartoons and Disney afternoon, all that stuff that came on after school. And I don't know why, but I, I would sit there and pick like the most random character and be like, why did they turn out this way? And then I found out that there was a career where you could look into that. Wow. Um, yeah. So I started to get interested. I started to take a couple extra classes on it. And in high school, I actually met a friend who had um, PTSD, um, depression and borderline. And we became really good friends. And she gave me kind of insight that I hadn't seen before. And then my last year in high school, I actually saw a therapist for anxiety. And then that's when I decided, you know what, this is apparently my calling because I'm seeing a bunch of um, signs. So I went in to uh, get my master's in professional counseling. And that's how I wound up in the mental health field. Wow, that's super interesting how it started in the sixth grade and you just analyzing characters because First of all, not only is that perfect for, you know, being a therapist, but just a writer in general. Like, I think that's really cool how it intertwines together. Yeah, it's a, it surprised me um, when I went back and started looking over really how I got into it. I'm like, oh, wow, this has been going on for a while. <laughs> that's fun. Like, you, you could just be like, yeah, Disney got me to be a therapist. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And and I and actually it's funny, um, I have an author tube channel where I actually take popular character tropes and I dissect them, like diagnose them psychology wise. And that's a lot of fun. So I guess I'm still doing it. <laughs> Wait, how did I not know this? Oh my god, this sounds perfect. I'm gonna be watching that. I'm gonna be binge watching your channel. <laughs> yeah, I will that's too. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Victoria, what's your journey been? Uh, well, in some ways it's similar, uh, to Catherine's that, uh, started, uh, I, in a 
in a roundabout way, I, it started where my family really has a lot of mental illness. And so I was around it uh, as a youngster and started experiencing personally uh, anxiety at a really young age and a lot of trauma. And um, it sort of went under the radar. I, I wasn't really diagnosed with anything. Um, I was pretty sort of uh, people pleaser, high functioning sort of all that kind of stuff. But then as I got older and sort of I went into the adult world and there was a transition into more pressures and things like that, um, my anxiety, depression, and disordered eating started to come up a lot. And I um, was an actor at the time. Um, and then at one point, my depression got really bad. And this is where it sort of goes a bit sideways, where I decided if I got enlightened and meditated, I wouldn't be depressed anymore. But mm. instead, I enlight I meditated and I went psychotic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And so, and the hard thing was, is that when this occurred, so for people that don't know, um, psychosis is when a person is sort of seeing things that other people don't see, hearing things that other people don't hear, believing things that other people don't believe, all this kind of stuff. I call it a non-shared reality because for me, it was very, very real. But for others, it's like you're, it's, it's just Looney Tuneville. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, and so what happened was because it was in a meditation, there were still a lot of spiritual components for me that were quite personally important, but the whole medical field pathologized it. And so it was really difficult for me to accept the illness because they were pathologizing a personally important experience for me. Um, and so to make a long story short, it just took me really five years to find a psychiatrist that really could help me hold both that I could have both a mental illness as well as a um, spiritual experience. When I found that I finally got involved in my own acceptance of um, my mental illnesses and um, treatment. And so I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, psychosis, anxiety, disordered eating, and my acting career derailed. And then I went into an office job just to get back on track. I had moved back home, stuff like this. But then at the office job, I was really craving my creativity. And it was a really important part of my recovery. Um, and instead of going back to acting, I started writing. And uh, it was really freeing. And I had gone through a lot of the acute um, therapy part of it. So it wasn't um, like um, therapy for me. It was really a chance to sort of express myself and share my story. And um, I, the, the first time I, I had sort of some excerpts from what I didn't know what it was going to become, whether it was a book or a play, and shared it at a disability arts festival. And then the things just snowballed from there where doors open people wanted to hear about it because i think at that time that was probably 17 years ago people weren't talking about mental illness and i wanted to talk about sort of the joe average kind of experience um with you know being depressed and having anxiety and when it really disables you and not just the regular blues for a few days but when you're having it for two weeks or three months or mm -hmm. you know stuff like that mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting point because uh, about the spirituality thing, because yeah. people, you, you kind of, 
you hear people be like, oh, all you got to do is like pray or all you have to do is meditate and everything will just vanish. Yeah. But it's like, no. that just won't work. No. Meditation and medication for me. <laughs> and, and honestly, I am not, like, I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I, it's, I'm not pro medication. I'm pro whatever uh, works. And Catherine, you probably see this. It's like, where, like, if you, if people don't need medication, that's awesome. I, I say the litmus test is what is my quality of life. And so I have a whole bunch of wellness tools so that I can stay creative, keep writing, keep performing, keep speaking, all that kind of stuff. And, and ironically, um, with medication, with exercise, proper sleep hygiene, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm more creative and my creativity is of better quality and more sustainable. Uh, that That's really good because I feel like some people, the, just the stigma surrounding medication is yeah. that, you know, people feel like it might stifle their creativity, you know? Yeah. Oh. And yeah, it, like it'll take away what they, what they want to say if they're you know, if they have medication, but like, yeah. if, if it's helping your quality of life, it, it's it probably the you. best thing to do if, if well, that's it, if what you need. Yeah. And, and I found that, uh, the right medication won't stifle creativity. So I was, I had, I, there was a whole trial and error priest for me. And there was some medication where I was on. And yes, I was out of the hospital and I wasn't going into psychoses or, um, you know, manias or anxiety attacks, but I certainly wasn't, I felt like a piece of chalk. And so that was not the right medication for me. And so I just had my dad who was a real advocate for me to help continue to uh, fight for me to find, you know, the right combination, the right amount, um, the right, uh, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's, uh, I think that's really important because there's a lot of, there's an incredible amount of stigma, not just with mental illness, but with, uh, a psychiatric medication. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, um, psychiatric meds, I mean, like you said, they work great for some people. Um, uh, some people don't need them. No. Um, um, one thing I like to bring up to people is um, sometimes you have someone who needs um, medication. Sometimes you need someone who me needs medication for a short while. Sometimes you have someone who doesn't need it at all. Um, and I, I think it's important that people find what works for them because mm -hmm. my big thing is that mental health and honestly, mental health and writing is all completely individualized. Um, yes. Just because something works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Um, I actually, for the most part, aside from when I diagnose someone for insurance purposes, I really don't necessarily at the diagnosis because there's so much um, stigma around, oh, if this person has this disorder, then this is what we need to do. Right. And that's not true for every single person. What, what we need to do is look at the individual person as an individual and what does the individual need? Yeah. Mm -hmm. As opposed to the label and just because the label's there and stuff. No. And I, and that's the thing is that when I've talked to others, just because two people have the same in quote, you know, condition, um, the approach to what they need is, is as individual as the, as our fingerprints. I, I think it's, 
very telling and it's a very it's nice because what I've noticed kind of doing my research is that a lot of um, people in the mental health space who are helping people, they have their own mental health journeys. And I feel like I, I, I was just, I, I wasn't shocked when I saw it, but I thought it was very interesting. And I was like, that makes sense because you have people who know what they're talking about from the inside and they're helping people in as opposed to people who don't know what they're talking about. And they're just like, Oh, you're depressed. Feel better. Take this drug, blah, blah, blah. But if you have somebody who has, has had personal, uh, a personal, sorry, a personal journey with it, they can be like, okay, I know what you're feeling. And here's what you could possibly do. I just think, I just think that's very nice that you two are in this space and able to help that way, share your journey. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So how have you two pulled, how have you pulled through difficult times? Catherine? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll I'll, I'll go, I'll go first. I'm fine with that. Um, for me, it's always been about my support network. Um, I have a very strong support network. So I have my husband and then I have my parents and my my parents-in-law and my sister. So mine has always been um, when I reach a difficult time, I lean on them. I call on them um, because a lot of times not only does it give me an outlet, but it's been nice to get a different angle, a different viewpoint on something, because a lot of times when we get stuck in a difficult situation, whether it be financially, physically, emotionally, whatever, we eventually develop tunnel vision. So it's like we get stuck in this idea of, okay, I've done everything I can do. There's nothing else I can do. But if you talk about it with someone and sit down with someone, a lot of times they see an angle that you can't see. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've always kind of depended on is I have my own, you know, self-care regimen and everything, but if that fails, then I go to my support group for help, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I can relate to that. It's it's funny when I think about, is there sort of one thing that I would say is what pulls me through? And I, I would probably would say something similar where, um, you know, if I had to eliminate uh the things that weren't as essential it is that support system um partially because when i'm going through particularly depression and anxiety just to feel connected um to sources of love um and the world um is really important um particularly when uh in depression or the anxiety when i'm feeling that incredible dread because the world feels so um, unsafe. And so people around me can help me um, feel that uh, sense of safety or sense of somewhat that it's gonna be okay. Um, And at the same time, at the base of that, besides that support, there's all these other, like you were saying, self-care where it's my um, daily exercise, um, my sleep, a diet, all these things that I know sort of need to be in place. My medication, seeing my psychiatrist, my counselor. Um, and then also really important is um, my spiritual practice. Um, and so for me, I'm, I'm sort of not 
um, affiliated with any particular um, religion, but just a real a sense of um, connection to something greater than myself. And so meditating, practicing Qigong, all that kind of stuff. And so it's really this mosaic that pulls me through and I hang on to them more tightly maybe or, mm -hmm. or intensely um, when I um, am having a tough time. That makes a lot of sense. That, that really hit me because every time before I go to record this podcast, I just have like just bouts of anxiety for like ever. And I'm just like, Valencia, you've done this 8 billion times. You need to chill out. But like, and right before doing this, I was just like, oh my gosh, I, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. What is, what is this? It's been two weeks. I don't know. And I, my mother calmed me down. So I can see how, like, if, if, if it wasn't for her, I would probably still be freaking out right now even in the middle of this podcast so <laughs> i can definitely see how a support system will definitely help um so hindsight is 2020 um i want to know what do you wish that you knew before what do you or no sorry what do you know now that you wish you knew before Ooh, this is a fun question um <laughs> <laughs> um I would say for me, it's it's kind of two things. One is that before I went in my master's program, I actually um, took a job as a behavioral health technician in an inpatient psychiatric facility, and I worked there for eight years. And I'm so glad I did it because seeing something in a book is one thing, actually interacting with people is a completely different thing. So um now, when someone says, you know, oh, well, um, so-and-so is catatonic, I know what that means. When someone mm -hmm. says they have pressured speech, I know what that means. Um, and all my schooling couldn't have taught me. That. Uh, I, I guess the other thing is that the physical and mental body are, they are not separate. They are intertwined. And I think that's something that we really need to focus on more because, the mind feeds the body, but the body also feeds the mind. So um, I can't tell you how many clients I've had who they start off seeing me and they have like constant neck aches, back aches. And then once we start to work through some things with them, those those ailments go away. So I would say probably that one most most of all is that understanding that the physical and the mental are one, not separate. You know what? I've never thought about it that way. <laughs> the physical body and it's it's all it's all intertwined i love that like what yeah mm. <laughs> i've never really thought of it in that regard well like i have but in so many words not really like if you treat yourself right on the outside then the inside could improve as well that's mind-blowing for me probably not for many other people <laughs> <laughs> everybody else is like girl <laughs> Um, I think, I guess it's more on a, a personal level where if I was in the throes of that, those first stages of, um, being really unwell, that creativity is really going to play a big part and I will be able to go back to doing what I love, my first love, which is writing and, um, acting because I had a really bleak outlook of what I thought my future was going to be. Um, 
and it was a lot of the stigma that goes along with what mental illness is and that sharing about mental illness is actually going to be what keeps me well mm. wow and, and that, yeah and that's what i really would want to emphasize to anybody that's listening is that you know it's it's not just you tell anybody but those people like Brene Brown says who have earned your trust, it's okay to talk to people about this. And if more than just it's okay to talk to, it's essential to talk to people about this, um, especially if you're feeling that you're suffering um, because it, it can get better, but it can only get better once we start talking about it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You've built an entire career off of it. Um, and you, this, this happened to you like in the early two thousands, right? Oh, oh yeah. 20 over 25 years ago. Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. And I mean, and I'd say the beginning then, cause I, I had quite a long period of wellness and then maybe in the last six years where I had some pretty severe episodes again, and mm -hmm. now I'm back on a, a fairly good playing field level playing field. So it happened in the early 2000s. So it probably was a completely different thing for you to, you know, share with people back then as opposed to now yeah, well, as well. And I think ignorance really is bliss because I didn't realize that. <laughs> um, and the reason why I shared was because I'm a real um, stage hound and I knew that there was good copy. I didn't expect blame this, but I also ran down the street naked in a psychosis. And so I thought that made for a really good story. <laughs> and so <laughs> my plays are all based on my own experience. They're all true. Um, and they describe sort of my journey from being very unwell to different aspects through the journey of into recovery. Um, and so it was very different. There were mainly celebrities that we're talking about a few celebrities a couple books kate jameson redfield had her book out um an unquiet mind and if you want to read a great memoir um wonderful uh wonderful book um but that was about it and other than that just really sensationalized in the media and it was never talked about like i hear it almost every other day in the media now yeah so the needles moved for sure um uh, but I think there's still misunderstanding and um, just with the tragedies recently where there's, there's still this idea that violence and mental illness go together and yeah. all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Terrible, terrible. And, and there is, and I also want to say there's a difference between mental health and mental illness. Like we all have yes. mental health, all of us, and we have varying degrees of whether it's, uh, you know, healthy or, or waning or and then mental illness where it's actually where you have a diagnosable condition. Um, so th there is a distinction, although we talk about it sort of interchangeably. Yes, yes. What is one thing you wish you could tell everybody, mental health wise and just otherwise? Hmm. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, I, actually, it's kind of funny. I'm kind of picking off of um, you, Victoria, but uh, <laughs> people with, mental illness are not um are not dangerous as a general rule um unlike what uh society and movies and stuff have told us um uh, i could probably write a whole novel just on how how much the media has botched um mental mental health and mental illness representation um 
um, as a general rule, no, people with um, mental illness, they're, they're not dangerous. In fact, I, I love talking to them. I mean, it's, it's not only is it my job, but I love doing it. Um, because they always are, they're always interesting. They're always fun to talk to. They always have great stories. Um, and I, I just think that that's something that more and more people need to realize is in order to get rid of this stigma, we have to talk about it. And, and we have to approach these people as what they are they're human beings and i always refer to people because um it's a lot of my clients when they first come in the, almost every single time the first thing they say is i'm not crazy i'm not crazy i'm like i didn't say you were crazy um as far as i'm concerned you just have um a condition that needs help same as if um someone were to come in with an elevated blood sugar i wouldn't i wouldn't scoff at them i'd say okay we just need to find a way to bring your blood sugar down, you know, that that's no problem. We just have to find out what works for you. Mm-hmm. And we just, I think just by talking about it more and more and bringing it to the public eye is really what's, is real one of the only things that's going to fix it. Yeah. Cause I feel like people are very hesitant to go to therapists because they just, they feel like therapists are there to judge but they're not there to judge. They're there to help and help, help you, you know, figure out what's going on with you. And they're there to aid and guide you, not judge. You think, you think people feel like, well, you do. Well, sorry. (laughs) I'm tired. (laughs) It's okay. That's all right. Um, no, that's something that um, a lot of people say is they they come into therapy um, usually kind of reluctantly because a, a lot of them have some trust issues for different reasons. And, you know, they they have a lot of times been subjected to people who have um, either made fun of them or um, I've had so many people tell me their families have told them that they don't have a mental illness. They don't believe in mental illness. Yeah. And so then it's like, okay, now, now what do I do? Because they said, you know, I know something's not right. Something's off kilter here, but my family's telling me that, um, I can make myself feel better. It's like, okay, it's a little more complicated than that. So, um, there is definitely still that's that stigma that affects how people interpret therapy. And unfortunately, I'm not going to lie. There's some therapists that are horrible. I'm not going to lie. There are some therapists that are horrible. But there's also some therapists that are very, very good. And um, I think a lot of times when people have had a bad experience in therapy, they're understandably reluctant to try it again. I mean, that's just basic survival instinct. If I go in to get therapy and I have a poor experience with it, my brain is telling me, okay, this did not end well, so I need to avoid this. And so then that's a whole other issue all in and of itself. Mm. So it's a trial and error process to find a therapist. Is there anything that people should be out on the be on the lookout for? Like if in their first session, if they do this, then maybe you should not be with them or something. Um, actually, from my experience, yeah. And that is if they're not listening to you. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean, like if you come in and you tell them, okay, um, 
I'm coming in. My issue is, um, you know, my family says I have anxiety, but all I all I want to focus on is that so I'm able to speak in front of people at school. If they automatically jump on, well, your well, your family says you have anxiety. Why why is that? What can we work on with that? Instead of addressing what you want to address, that's a red flag, because oh. it's your therapy, and what we need to address is what you feel needs work. And a lot of times what happens is people come in and they tell me, um, I've had a few people tell me, well, you know, I don't think I need therapy. And it's like, okay, that's fine. Um, is there anything going on in your life that is difficult for you? And usually they'll tell me, yeah, it's like, okay, so can we look at that? And then usually that will lead into, well, you know, is, is this maybe one reason your, your family was concerned for you? And usually they're like, eh, okay, maybe, you know, things like that. <laughs> Wow. Wow. What is one thing you wish you could tell everybody, Victoria? Um, I, you know, I was trying to think about that. And I, and I, I love what you're saying, Catherine, around therapy, because I think therapy even has a stigma around it. The idea that if you're going to therapy, you need help. That means you're not coping well and all this kind of thing. And um, one of the things I'd want to tell people is that therapy can change a person's life with the right therapist and the right relationship with that therapist. Um, it's very frightening to go into sometimes because it can be very vulnerable, but it's uh, been an essential component. Um, and I would say that, you know, in combination for my severe mental illness, it's been therapy and medication that's been some of the glue that's really helped me on my wellness journey. Um, I think the other thing that I'd want to say is that um, mental health affects everyone and um, mental illness as well is that it's not a them and us because it's like what one out of four, one out of five people um, have some kind of condition and the other four people are indirectly affected by it. So if we're thinking that, you know, it doesn't touch our lives, it, it does. It's just that we're not speaking about it. And, and I guess, um, I'd want to talk to sort of maybe people that maybe have loved ones is that it, it can get better. Um, and that recovery is possible. Um, recovery is relative depending on where, you know, a person's at and resources and things like that. Um, but a, a reclaiming of a person's sense of purpose and meaning um, and some quality and semblance of life is definitely possible. Um, and I think that's one of the most um, things that I needed to hear was I needed to know that there was hope. Right. Definitely. I mean, hope is a very strong um, it's a very strong mode. Um, I can't, I can't remember it now, which is horrible. Usually really good with quotes, but anyway. Um, is it, is it the one that hope, uh, hang on pain ends? Uh, no, it's similar oh. though. It's, um, yeah. it's, it's basically, um, be, be wary of taking away a person's hope. It may be all they have. Right. right. Um, but yeah, same, same basic idea. Um, yeah. Most most people that come that come in for therapy, I mean, if I can give them hope, honestly, they can they can usually take it the rest of the way with support and guidance. But um, hope is definitely that 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 strong um, engine, I guess you could call it. Yeah, very true. 
All right, so we've actually been joined by our third guest. Could you please introduce yourself? Um, I'm Ismail, that's me, and so I'm Adiba Nelson, um, writer, author, and aspiring screenwriter. And Adiba, you you aren't in the mental health space, but I know you're all about empowerment, and I know that that's one aspect of mental health that we have to pay attention to, is just, you know, uh, thinking the best of ourselves and whatnot. So I was really excited to hear your story on here. Could you tell us your journey? Um, so basically I moved to Arizona from New York City, uh, with my mom when I was seven, which was a total culture shock. Uh, lived here, I've lived here off and on for about 30 years. Um, but we didn't grow up with by any stretch of the imagination, but I didn't know that I was born. Um, one of those situations where, you know, you make the best out of what life hands you. Um, and my mom's motto was always, you know, life is what you make it. And so that kind of stuck with me. So I think that's why I didn't realize that I was poor, mm-hmm. um, because I was trying to do big things. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, I went to college, did the partying thing that all kids, well, most kids, so you get a really strict mom to get to college, forget you have any sort of sense. Um, that graduated and a daughter, um, about six years later, didn't know when I was pregnant that there was any, um, health issues. Um, but when she was about two months old, I could tell something was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, background is in work and talent. So I knew that things were kind of off. Um, but her doctor uh, just didn't believe me. She just kept giving me excuse after excuse of, of why things were the way they were. And so basically, I did the research and discovered what my diagnosis actually was and then finally convinced the pediatrician to give us a referral to... Uh, pediatric orthopedic specialist. My daughter's left arm doesn't cooperate. Um, knowing full well that when we to the specialist, I was going to ask for a neurologist. And that kind of started us on our journey of getting a diagnosis of bilateral schizencephaly and deciding that we're going to take control of this order rather than the sort of control of us. Mm-hmm. So, and we've kind of seen it ever since. Not always easy. You know, she was just a seizure disorder um, on top of it. But, um, you know, it's life is what you make it. And so we're just trying to make it awesome. All right. All right. Um, so we are on the question of what do you wish what is one thing you wish you could tell everyone? Um, in general or yeah. in regards to health or? Yeah, mental health, um, just how you've pulled through and, you know, what, <laughs> what's one thing that you, you've gained from your journey that you could share with other people? 
Um, the one thing for me, and I can really only speak for myself, mm-hmm. but there was a period, um, 2011 and 2012, where I feel like that was my rock bottom. Mm. Um, I had lost a job um, again because I was trying to be a good mom and take care of my um, but employers apparently don't like it when to leave work a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had lost my job, consequently lost my brand new apartment, had to move in with a boyfriend at the time and his daughter, which wasn't ideal. And then he and I broke up and I was working, I think, six hours a week because that's all I could work because of my daughter's medical needs. Um, so surviving on my little paycheck, the money that she was getting from security for her disability and her biological father's disability, and food stamps, which um, was a shock to the system when you graduate, you know, top of your class, and then all of a sudden you're on food stamps. Like, this is just not how it's supposed to go. Um, but I just kept saying to myself, like on the darkest of days, like on the day that I thought that I was going to have to turn my daughter over to a children's shelter because I was feeling in my mind at providing for her as a mother. Um, I just kept saying to myself, you know, this is not where my story ends. I refuse to believe that this, this is how it's all going to go down. Um, there's got to be more to my story than just this. I didn't come this far in life to have this be the last page. Um, and that just kind of always pushed me forward a little bit more to say, like, this is not how I'm going to go out. This is not going to be my legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that that's not easy for everyone um, to do or to think. But... I wish, I do wish that people could adopt that mindset when they feel like their back's against the wall. I would just wish that more people understood that they have more a role being their destiny than they think they have. I think that nicely ties into what they were saying before is that, you know, hope, it seems to be like that fundamental thing that keeps everybody going. So... That that really makes a lot of sense. What are I want to ask Victoria and Catherine? What are the signs that you should watch out for when the balance shifts from sadness to depression to more? Um, what I've noticed, and this is something that um, we do in therapy, is we have people identify how do they how do they act when they're feeling well and how do they act when they're not feeling well? And a lot of times the last one, they really struggle with it. So what I typically do is, okay, what happens physically? Because a lot of times what happens when we shift through emotional states is really hard necessarily to catch when your emotional state is shifting sometimes, but it's usually easier to catch. Okay. I usually go out and jog five days a week, but now I'm only doing it three days a week. That's, that's odd. And I think sometimes physical signs are easier for people to catch. Um, when I, when I'm coaching people on how to, um, notice if they're getting angry, for instance, a lot of times I focus on physical signs. So 
you know, they start clenching their teeth, they, they start um, bunching their fists, they, they start pacing, you know, things like that. Um, and one thing that I have definitely heard from a bunch of different clients that I've worked with is they said, sadness and depression, a lot of times in media, especially are kind of called um, the same thing, or they're expansions of the same thing. And that's not necessarily true. Um, one of the uh, definitions I've heard the most is that Sadness is feeling down, feeling blue. Depression is feeling nothing. Depression is feeling you don't want to do anything. You're numb. And I think that's an important distinction that um, a lot of times people who are especially not first in mental health can kind of miss. Wow. That's, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes I even feel I'm like, am I depressed? But, and it's like, a lot of sadness, but I wouldn't, I've never thought about depression being just nothingness. And I feel like that is a very important distinction that nobody knows. So thank you for that because I, I had no idea. Do you have anything to add, Victoria? No, I would just really echo that it's that uh, sense of, um, numbness where nothing that I normally would enjoy, do I enjoy anymore? Mm -hmm. I can't get that sort of spark of aliveness. Um, and then if it's going to more than that, where there's actually a sense of um, helplessness and despair, where it just like the world literally feels less colorful. Um, and the other thing I remember I was speaking at a university and one of the um, students asked like, how, how do you know when it is um, depression? Like as opposed to sort of just feeling down. And, and mm -hmm. I, I said, it's somewhat like um, if you drink alcohol. So if you are, you know, you have a drink once in a while and maybe one time you go to a party and you have too much to drink and you have a hangover the next day. But if all of a sudden you're drinking every weekend and you're getting totally smashed and you're binge drinking and it's interfering with the rest of your life or it's interfering with your relationships, interfering with your work or your schoolwork, and it's going on for more than, let's say, you know, two weeks, four, four, I wouldn't say two weeks, but four weeks, six weeks, and it becomes something habitual. That's when you start to go, okay, and this is out of character for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the important things is particularly when it becomes disabling. And ideally, we want to get it before that. And so what Catherine was talking about, so what I learn is my warning signs. And it's exactly what she said is that I usually go running three to four times a week, if all of a sudden I realize I am not motivated to go running at all, I know something's up. If all of a sudden my sense of humor, which is usually pretty um, strong, has started to die down, okay, then those are, those are my unique, I call them my sort of fingerprint warning signs. And so knowing what my baseline is helps me understand when I'm starting to uh, go down just a little bit. And it's that I ability to identify it as early as possible that allows me to intervene sooner and more quickly so that it arrests it before diet goes into anything that could be considered um, depression. What do you find that people struggle to come to terms with the most? For me, I would say 
Loss of control. Um, that is something that honestly pops up in almost every client I see is we like to be in control. We like to know what's going to happen. Um, and when we don't, then that's usually honestly when things like anxiety um, kick in because um, it's we like predictability. <laughs> um, and I think having control tells us, okay, we I know what's going to happen. I'm in control of what's going to happen. I can determine how this ends. And so I think when we lose that control, that's where people really struggle. Like, I think that's the thing when I counsel people, for example, that have grief, a lot of times what it boils down to is they want something to blame. They want someone to blame. And when there's no one to blame, it's like our brain doesn't know what to do. It's like, okay, something has happened that has completely thrown my life into a whirlwind. I need someone to point a finger at and say, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. um, and when we don't have that, then we kind of have to come to terms with sometimes we don't have control. And that is a very scary concept for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and are you referring to sort of uh, mental health, mental illness? Yes. Um, I think for me, I guess if we're talking about actual being diagnosed with a mental illness, it was my sense of identity that had really been torn apart. So for me, accepting the illness meant that I was accepting the label, which equated to this certain kind of stereotype that I, I thought of when I thought of a person with a mental illness. And so I had a lot of difficulty and I see this in others is that sometimes accepting help and accepting, let's say if you do have a diagnosis of some sort, um, that it's, I needed to grieve the parts of my life and parts of myself that I had lost or would not be the same, but also know at the same time that as I grieved those things, new parts in a different constellation would come back and ideally in a stronger way, just sort of like how a, you know, um, where you have a scar or that's part of my war wound and I have a story to tell around that. Um, and I can be stronger because of it. Um, but I need to really own it both by letting it, letting those parts go and owning who I am with this new story. Um, and that probably, um, I think takes people the longest and it's also, just the willingness to accept help um, is what the question I get from parents all the time with their adult children is that they're desperately trying to help their adult children um, recognize that they um, need some kind of help. And that journey, unfortunately, is theirs on their own, though we can really create a, a ground that's fertile with uh, non-judgment and compassion to make it easier for a person to feel safe enough to accept help. Adiba, um, yep. just people that have, that you've encountered, is there anybody that you find that they struggle to accept anything? Like, do they also have children that, you know, need extra care or anything? Do you yeah. find that they also struggle with things? 
Yes, definitely. Um, uh, people that are very close to actually them struggle with the idea they could be diagnosed with something struggle with the notion of going to see someone to get a diagnosis um, because they have people in their immediate family who are diagnosed and they see not only the struggles with that person but also the way society responds to that person mm-hmm. and the stigma it so they're very hesitant to work on their own stuff and get their their mental and emotional health needs under control because of that yeah yeah you know i think um i never really you you never really think about the parents who um you know have to give extra care to their children you you just don't really you, you don't think about their mental health so it's nice to have you on here um and you know advocating for that um Adiba, so how did you, how do you, how did you embrace life is what you make it? I heard your TED talk and you talked about how your mother, that's like her saying, how did you? Embrace uh-huh. it? Um, well, as a teenager, it was really a name. Um, <laughs> when, because I was a teenager and that's what I wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but to I me, mean, it's just when you're a kid, that concept of what you make it doesn't really um, make sense because you're so egocentric as an adolescent and as a teenager. Um, everything is always everybody else's fault. Um, I didn't really fully get it until, I don't think I really fully got it, honestly, until I had my own kid. Mm. That's when I really started to understand truly that life is what I made it. I mean, I was doing fine before I had my daughter, you know, but I wasn't, I wasn't being intentional with my words, with my actions, with my money, with anything. I just wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the whole point of life is what you make it is the act of being intentional in all you do and understanding everything you do when you do it with intention has its own recourse, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say that once you have a kid, you really don't get to be egocentric anymore. You you can to an extent. I mean, everyone needs you know, me time and no mommy time and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but all literally no longer revolves around you when you have a kid. You kind of cease to exist um, in the world. You kind of, I always joke, you know, I lost my name when I had my kid. I just became Emerald. That's, that's mm-hmm. who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, but understanding that because now there is another person in this world that I'm responsible for, I have to really be intentional about everything that kind of forced me to really embrace it for all that it is. I think it's funny that you said um, 
you didn't really get it until you had a kid because really parents can tell you 5 million times throughout your childhood, something that yep. they want you to know, but you aren't going to get it until you go through it yourself. I swear. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 100%. Yeah. Victoria, I heard a quote from you and you said to me, it's about rediscovering joy in real life. And a lot of people don't even find that chance, even if they don't have mental illness. So I wanted to know, how do you re- rediscover joy? Uh, yeah, it, it ha- I had to rediscover it because I had had a taste of mania and bipolar disorder where there's you know, euphoria and high energy and flight of ideas and all this kind of stuff. And um, I needed to find it in a way that was safe and more grounded. Um, So the great thing, the gift in the illness was that I was asked to uh, really find my joy again. And how I do that, um, a lot of it is just really connecting to the present moment. Um, that's also, and, and how I define joy isn't this exuberance necessarily. It's that um, almost more of a, in the spiritual definition where it's a deep inner contentment and rightness with myself and a connection with the world. And so that really means that I need to be um, in the moment and practicing that kind of mindfulness. And when I do that, that a lot of times means I'm in nature, um, I'm actively listening with um, my close friends or my husband, um, and being able to lose myself in whatever I'm doing. So it can even be watching a television show and and laughing wholeheartedly. Um, And uh, that's often the easiest way that I can access it where I really just when I'm in my head find a way to be present and grounded in the world and um, it often comes through small things like we have deer that come through our yard all the time and we have this little fawn that's been around for a while and just being able to watch her is uh, amazing. And that's the kind of joy that uh, I need to continue to nurture. And that in, as a result, nurtures my wellness. Oh my goodness. If there was any place that I would want to be in the moment is that beautiful place that you call home. Because <laughs> it just sounds amazing. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it is pretty special. And the, and the hilarious thing is we, we bought here because it was the only place we could afford a house. <laughs> Really? <laughs> and oh, yeah. it just turned out to be awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had no idea, but yeah, it's we're it's we're very, very fortunate. Good, good. Catherine, I want to know how has being a therapist helped your own mental health? Have you has there been times where you know you're you're helping somebody have a breakthrough and you're like, you know what? Wait, this actually kind of applies to me too. Or, you know, just just things that you've picked up along the way that you're like, okay, this is a technique that I can learn for myself. Um, yeah. I would say um the major thing was actually something I learned when I was going to school for my counseling degree. They taught us how to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that probably sounds weird, but there is a distinct way to listen. And 
it, here's a little tip. If you are in a conversation with someone and you stop talking and they immediately start talking, they stopped listening to you about, um, about half, about two to five seconds ago. Um, because in general, we don't, in regular conversation, we don't listen to listen. We listen to respond. So oh. about halfway through a conversation, the other person is starting to develop their response. So when we go into training to be a therapist, they teach us how to turn that off. And so when I am counseling someone, there are periods of silence throughout the whole session. Oh, and wow. it's very weird because it took me a while to get used to it because I automatically wanted to give a response because silence is uncomfortable. But by learning that, that means that I've learned how to truly listen when someone's talking to me. So if there's an issue, I can listen, process, then respond. And a lot of the times the issues come up because we make assumptions or we don't, um, we don't truly understand what the person has said. Another technique they teach us is called parroting, which is basically someone says something to you, you wait and then you say, okay, here's what I think you said. And you repeat back to them. Here's what I think you're telling me. And then they can either tell you, yeah, you're spot on or no, this is really what I meant. Um, and I'll level with you guys. I've been married to my husband for six years and we have never had a fight. Oh my God. Ever? <laughs> Ever. What? <laughs> Ever. <laughs> because my husband, I actually met him. He was working as a behavioral health tech at the same place I was. And so we both have learned like these little techniques working in mental health. So when we start to have an argument, we automatically switch to, okay, I need to go into active listening mode here. And so we resolve conflict before it leads to a fight. So I think that is the strongest thing I've learned is how to listen. That's that amazing. Is wild. <laughs> like wow. That's a TED Talk subject. Yes. I'm going to be watching. Teach me how to listen. Low key, I I feel attacked a little bit because I do have, no, I'm joking. I'd have to, um, you know, as a podcast host, you have to, you know, come up with nice things to say. Like, you know, because I can imagine me being on the podcast and just being like, so you don't fight with your husband. Could you imagine like me just pausing and just having a silence? That would be pretty interesting, actually. Oh my gosh. The, you're you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So Adiba, you are you dance, okay? I saw I do. you I saw your documentary, The Full Nelson, and my mm-hmm. mom loves the name, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. Is your dancing a form of self-care for you? Oh, God, yes. Absolutely. (laughs) It's um, a way that I get to say all the things that I can say out Well, I can say them out loud, but um, all the things that I want to say but can't say, like, on social media, because... The judgy mom crew will come, and I, I don't necessarily care about the moms. I'm gonna cardigan crew, um, but there's always a few people who are like, but wait, 
you write children's books. Should you really be saying these things? And I'm like, I'm human. I'm a woman. I'm breathing. Yes, I should be saying these things. Just because I write children's books does not mean that I don't think about sex. Like, I'm normal. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it gets, gives me an opportunity to say things dance that I wouldn't typically be able to say out loud about sex, about politics, about race, about size. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely therapy for me. What age group do you write for? <laughs> like, <clears throat> I write for adults, um, like basically birth to third grade. Like, they ain't going to be going on your Twitter and looking at Basically, <laughs> they're not. If, if but... anything, it's their parents, and they're probably like, yeah, tell them. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I do have some kids who, at my daughter's friend, they know that I do burlesque because they have now discovered Google, and oh. they Googled me, and they're like, oh, my God, her mom's a tripper, and I'm like, okay, let's explain <laughs> the difference yeah. between yeah. Burr and burlesque. <laughs> um, that's a really interesting conversation to have with graders. Um, so, and their moms know that I do it, so that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um. But I know that there are other moms at the school who my daughter friends with them. They see me or they've seen the documentary or anything. Like if they Googled me and they're like, oh, that. Oh. I'm like, meh, whatever. Yeah, I do it. So, like, people are going to they can do about that ah, yeah that there was nothing wrong with that documentary at all it's perfect i i don't think there was but i mean like my my uh, one of my aunts called me recently like you know are you sure that you want to put this out there because you know you work with kids and you know, do you want their parents to know that you also like do burlesque? I'm like, uh, yeah, actually, I hope their moms do find out that I do burlesque because then we can talk about why all women should do burlesque. Yeah, and why they should have, you know, hobbies outside right. of their kids if they can't help it. Um, right, you still make your child your life. I may, I, I, what I did when I watched your documentary, I cried. <laughs> I cried. Uh -huh. And then I sent it to my friend and she cried too. We were like, sorry, not sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, good, cry. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I want to ask have you seen, the, we've talked about this, we actually already touched on it. But have you seen the rhetoric about mental health shift over the years and how so? Because I feel like, you know, even in the past, like, it, even as you talk about it a lot these days, it's never in so much of a good light. And I feel like also people are, you know, self-care. I'm starting to hear a lot more about self-care. I don't think I've ever, I ever heard about it in like, the past years but you know even that's getting a little bit of flack people are like why do you need self-care so much self-care what you want to take a bubble bath what so what do you, what do you think um so 
have seen this shit in self-care change or in mental health as far as uh, the way people talk about it, mm-hmm. um, the way I prioritize it. Um, I've seen a lot more, at least in my circle of friends, I understand that this is not everyone's circle, but I feel really blessed to be in the circle of people who are very conscious of their word choice, um, especially when it comes to issues of mental health. Um, being very uh, cognizant to not be ableist in their speak, um, but to also not be derogatory in their speak um, around mental and emotional health. And really, at least in my friends, we do encourage each other, we push each other, and with each other to make sure that we are practicing self-care um, because we all have so many different um things in our life that are pulling us in different directions, whether it's spouse or children or career or lack of career or anything, like all these different things are pulling at us. And so we each really make it a point to check in with each other, um, even if it's just by text, to make sure that, you know, we're taking care of ourselves. And we try to get together at least once a month just to do a girl's dinner where we just sit around and catch up because even that is therapeutic for us. Whereas before I think we were very just go, 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 work, 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 career, 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 husband, husband, husband. Mm -hmm. Um, And really understanding the importance of community um, in regards to our mental and emotional well-being. Um, And I've seen, at least here in Arizona, more people really show empathy and compassion around um, our mentally ill uh, community members, um, especially our homeless. Uh, we're very mindful, especially when it comes to like having to possibly have law enforcement involved. We're very mindful of, you know, asking, can you please send your crisis response unit? Um, your mental health crisis response unit and not your typical, you know, street cops. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they're trained differently. Mm -hmm. Um, They come in plain clothes and they approach differently. Um, A whole different act. And we've seen a change in how law enforcement handles our mentally ill and how they respond to those calls. Um, so I can't speak for other cities in the country, but I can definitely speak for mine. Is that I have seen change. We have a long way to go um, locally and nationally, but there has been change and I think change in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I, I spoke to this earlier and I've seen it change. Um, quite an enormous amount actually and I um, agree with Adiba that you know there's still a long ways to go I mean where we started wasn't a great place to begin with yeah (laughs) so you know it's all relative but the needle has moved so the way that I measured is that it's become a mainstream talk topic now mental health mental illness mental health in the workplace um, trauma informed care particularly recognizing that trauma has a trauma adverse like ch- uh, childhood adverse um, 
or adverse childhood experiences have a huge impact on mental health and mental illness. Um, so those things are becoming more uh, common vernacular. So the fact that it's becoming something in the sort of the mainstream is a really good sign, um, as opposed to before where it uh, it barely registered on the radar. Um, so in uh, in Canada, where I am, you know, we have um, you know multinational companies that are taking on mental health as, as their themes and their values, and so that's something that didn't happen um, fifteen years ago, probably not even ten years ago. So. Um, I think where the gap is, is that we need to put, we have to have our governments put um, money where their mouths are so um, so that there's actual accessible and appropriate treatment so that as we talk about it and people are willing to get help, there needs to be help that people can get. And um, uh, insurance is a, a minefield from what I understand in the states around mental health and in Canada, accessibility to services, it's uh, it's a lot better in terms of not being financially a barrier, but um, there's still an, a, a dearth of um, services. So that's where I see that we probably need the, the most amount of work uh, done. Catherine? Um, I would say we are def we have definitely come a long way. We are not perfect by any means yet, but um, we have definitely improved. I mean, you look back 16, 1700s, someone with a mental illness was literally put in a cage and spun to spin the demons out of them. Um, okay. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> Yay, um, I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. Um, I know. But, oh, no. but I think one of the uh, main things that I think would help the most is we need to get this idea out that emotions are not bad mm. because um, I mean, still people kind of look at it as, well, I can't get angry. Anger is a bad emotion. I can't tell you how many people told me, well, I have, I have the bad emotions. I'm like, there isn't a bad emotion. Being angry is not a bad emotion. Punching someone because you're angry, that's a bad idea. But the <laughs> anger itself is not the problem. And unfortunately, I mean, I still get folks that say they, they grew up, they weren't allowed to cry. Um, mm -hmm. Crying is a sign of weakness. Um, actually, I have a quote on my um, office door that says, um, people who cry are not weak. They cry because they've been strong for too long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I I just think that would make a huge difference is if we could educate children when they're really little, it's okay to be upset and be angry and be sad and be frustrated and give them healthy ways to express it. Because a lot of times what happens is, you know, we picture like toddlers, for instance, they get angry and, you know, they throw things or kick something or whatnot. And it's because they don't know what to do with it. Um, so I think part of our job is to teach kids as they grow, here's what you can do when you're feeling this emotion to let me know so that I can help you. And I think that's like me and my, when I do my writing, that's something I try to put in all my writing is your emotion is not bad. It's what you do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that would be a big step in the right direction. One of my uh, psychiatrists had a great phrase where he says, um, uh, it's not about losing your temper, temper, but using your anger. And um, 
it helped me understand that I can use my anger in a constructive way as opposed to losing my temper, where which is what I witnessed when I was a kid, where it just was, you know, frightening and out of control. Mm-hmm. That's that's a good phrase. I, I like that because um, it's it's because, yeah, we're we're basically teaching people to take energy and redirect it because, um, I mean, every emotion we have has energy. Um, and that's why a lot of times when people don't talk about their feelings or they don't get their emotions out, that's why we start to see those physical manifestations of those emotions, the back aches, the headaches, the stomach aches, because it has to go somewhere. I think a very interesting sign of the times is that like, um, there's a school in Oregon and there are many schools here that in America that, um, are allowing mental health days. And I remember when I was in school, which it was only a couple years ago, but it was like mental health day. What? Like, even, even if it was so recently, it was just like, no, you get to school because you're being lazy. So I think it's very nice that people are starting to implement things like this for the younger generation so that they are more aware, like like y'all said. What do you think about the mental health days being introduced, introduced into schools? Um, I think they should be introduced into workplaces, schools, everywhere. Um, yeah. Because uh, you can't pour from an empty cup is something we say a lot. Um, and some days, you know, you just, for whatever reason, you, you can't do it. You know, it, sometimes it's a buildup of a lot of things. Sometimes we just wake up and it's like, you know, I, I, I'm not feeling it today. <laughs> and just like I wouldn't criticize someone who called and said that they have the flu, I shouldn't be criticizing someone that calls and says they need a, they need a day. So right. I think it's awesome. I, I think it, they need to do it more everywhere. <laughs> well, and the thing that I sort of take issue with is that we have to separate mental health days from sick days because part of what I love to see is that we start to recognize that the mind and the body are one. And so a mental health day and a sick day is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, it, and it reminds me of when I read this, where this gentleman hoped at one point that there'd be enough freedom from stigma that someone could say, I'm going to see my therapist or I'm going, I need some time off to see my psychiatrist. The way that someone would say, I need to go and see my doctor. I have a doctor's mm-hmm. appointment. Um, and I can, I, I can tell people would, you know, feel like that's too exposing and it's, you know, too vulnerable to say, but it's mine. It, it's somehow um, closing that gap. Um, and so I know it's important to to call them mental health day so that we uh, we frame it. But I really would love to see that it's sort of like a health day. <laughs> it's like just a it's a health day. We mm-hmm. need to take it off because we're physically ill or we're mentally unwell, and we just need some time to recharge. And so yeah, that'd be super nice to just be like, yeah, I'm going to see my therapist, and they're like, oh yeah. Cool. Like I saw my therapist yesterday and we made awesome progress. I know. And everybody's like taking charge of their own health and well-being. That's like, because, you know, who wants to be, you know, struck down by some kind of physical ailment to finally go, oh, I think I need to do something about this. So, yeah. You know what? I just, 
we need to take over the world because <laughs> if, if imagine everybody getting therapy, do you know like how happy people would be? I think the very structure <laughs> of this world might change. <laughs> no, but then we'd have nothing to write. But we wouldn't have anything to write about because everybody True. would be so well adjusted. <laughs> True. Wait, wait. Okay, maybe that's like a dystopian novel. Everybody's yeah. so chill. That's that... right. <laughs> right. They're so chill. There's nothing going on. <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of great. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, Adiba, did you have any thoughts on mental health days? <laughs> Um, I am a fan, <laughs> big fan of mental health days. Um, I probably don't take enough of them. Mm-hmm. My doctor actually prescribed me mental health days um, in January. Oh, wow. And, yeah. I was like, you absolutely need to start this. Um, mm. So, yeah, definitely a fan of taking them, utilizing them. Um, making other people take them, giving them to my kid. Like, it just, I think if we don't, like, at, at least for me, like, if I don't acknowledge my mental, emotional state, mm-hmm. if I just keep trucking, body will eventually, like, no, you need to pay attention and shut down completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the work that I do and because, of the issues with my daughter, I can't afford for everything to shut down. Like, that's just not a possibility. Yeah. Um, and so I, my doctor was like, unless you want to be here every month, you need to start doing this. Um, and so now I'm, I'm very adamant about listening to my body, listening to, you know, the talk in my head, the din, if you will, um, and checking in with myself. And saying, you know, not be mom and not be wife for a couple of days. It was. I just need. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. it was. It was just your your regular doctor. Uh, yeah, I have an immune disorder, um, and in um, December, like right around Christmas time, I had a massive flip, and nothing would bring it down at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in. New Year's Eve, I was still really, really sick. And so I made an appointment to see my doctor. Um, and my doctor also is um, there in internal medicine, is their specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, but their partner is a rheumatist. And so. It's nice that he he's a doctor that recognizes what Victoria and Catherine were saying about the mind and body being intertwined together. So like he, he didn't just say, Oh, you're just sick. He, he could also be like your, your mind is also affecting. So it's nice that he he had the foresight to give you, um, um, mental health days. It's nice. Yeah. And asked some really key questions that kind of helped him piece it all together, which I don't think doctors do enough. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't really know like what is going life about your average day you know tell me about what's happening with your kids like he really he asks those questions that many doctors just your general pcp don't ask 
Um, Because for him, it kind of helps paint the whole picture so you can kind of get a real sense of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now I do. You know, I'm fortunate enough that once a quarter, I can afford to do like just a staycation at a local hotel for just myself Mm -hmm. Um, and just do a night or two at the hotel where I'm not mom, my wife. I'm not, you know, hanging out with my girls, being a good listener. I'm just me by myself in a hotel room with a nice bath and some rest. <laughs> um, fluffy towels. <laughs> yes, exactly. And like really bad movies on Lifetime. Like, yes. and I can just do that um, like once a quarter. Um, and then, you know, sometimes if I feel like I need more than um, a self-care day or a mental health day once a quarter, uh, instead of working on a Friday, sometimes I take myself to the movies, just something really mindless and nice. chill where I don't have to talk to anybody, I sit in a dark room and just kind of lose myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll just do that um, just to give my brain a break from all the thinking. Sounds nice. Um, are there any insight, any insights you have on balancing hardships with being creative? Like, I know that mm. once, yeah, like once you you just hit like a bad spot, it's hard to bring yourself to want to create anything. And I want to see if you all have any experience with that. I think of that right now. Anyone has any tips to share? Me, yeah. That would be great. Yeah, this is just me digging for information. <laughs> well, one thing I can say is um, uh, one thing I've noticed is that sometimes when we shift from a creative medium to a different creative medium, sometimes that can be kind of a reset button. Um, so, like if we're going through a hard time, we can't write or whatnot okay, um, what about music? What about, um, you know, painting? Um, One of my favorites is we actually have um, something called a sand tray therapy, which is a lot of fun, Um, where basically you just have a tray of sand and it has different um, items and whatnot in it, and you move them around to create images. And what you come up with kind of is an insight into your mental state and it's a good way to like let things out i also do um music therapy even though i can't play an instrument um with some of my clients um where what we'll do is we'll take songs like popular songs and we'll dig through the lyrics and we'll talk about the lyrics and we'll listen to the songs and things like that um there's also mandala therapy which is basically where you get a sheet of paper and it has a simple circle on it and you put on different kinds of music and then you just draw or paint or whatever, anything that comes to mind. There's doesn't have to be a specific thing. And then when the session's over, actually what's inside the circle is a representation of your inner feelings. And what's outside the circle is a representation of external pressures. So I think shifting mediums is a lot of is helpful um, if you're ha- if you're kind of stuck in one. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I find, cause I was recently in a, a really severe state of, 
uh, anxiety and also quite sort of depressed and still needing to find some way to be creative. And so there was sort of a, a three-pronged approach and part of it is creating that base of self-compassion um, and really a lot of uh, self-kindness and gentleness um, because I have a tendency to want to, you know, push the river. And so flowing with the river isn't necessarily my natural MO. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, and forcing creativity just never really works anyway. Um, and beating yourself up while you're trying to be creative is really not a good wrestling move. <laughs> um, and so, and the other um, two areas that I find is sort of in that line of flowing with the river and a lot of times where I don't feel that there's a river at all um, go where I have known that there's a little spark of joy or where I sense that there might be a little bit of ease so if there's something that I uh, have a little bit of interest in that I feel a little bit of fire um, that's where I'll go first instead of tackling the hardest thing um, and then the uh, other one is to give myself permission just to back off completely from anything that is non-essential, anything that's a creative project that I don't have a deadline uh, to do. Um, and then uh, if I am needing to write, to use sort of timed writing with writing prompts. So in the, in the vein of uh, Natalie Goldberg's timed writings, um, writing down the bones has been a real... Um, touchstone for me so just being able to to say I remember and then just write or take a, any kind of snippet and just use it as inspiration and it's amazing the kind of stuff that will flow and sometimes it gives me back my confidence nice writing down all of these suggestions y'all <laughs> um writers face a lot of rejection like I mean, it's probably one of the hardest jobs, like other than being a, a, an actor, which Victoria, you've done. So you face a lot of doubt and you live inside your own head. Do you have any advice for like how to get through that? Um, are you asking me or? Oh, just anybody. If y'all have. <laughs> we're, we're all waiting for an answer. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just skip this question. Nobody knows. <laughs> Catherine, we can start with you. Um, um, I would say um, one trick that I have learned over the years is every positive comment I've gotten on my writing, no matter how insignificant it might see, seem, I save. Mm -hmm. And I put it in a folder. And then when I hit a period where I'm doubting myself or I feel really bad, I pull this folder out and I flip through it. It's like, oh, I don't suck as much as I think I do. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of times what happens is when we get that doubt, I think we kind of slip into we want external validation. You know, we want someone to tell us that we're doing well. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also internal um, validation, which I think a lot of writers don't do it as much as they should. And that's why I save all my writing. Even the writing I think is horrible, I save it. And I put it in a folder either on my computer or sometimes I print it out and I label it by like how long ago it was. And so if I'm feeling down, I go read the writing that I wrote like 
I kid you not, I have one I wrote in fourth grade <laughs> and I read it and I'm like, oh my God, oh boy. Um, but then I skip ahead and I read one of my more recent writers like, hey, I have improved. So <laughs> I, I think with writers, we, we unfortunately, we do a lot of the comparison with each other. Like, you know, oh, I'm not as good as Stephen King or, you know, whatever. Um, but what we really should be doing is, am I a better writer than I was yesterday? Hmm. You know what? That just makes too much sense. I can't do it. <laughs> you know how something you just hear something like, yeah, you know what? That's that makes all the sense in the world. And I am still going to be bad. <laughs> no, I. Yeah. Um, Victoria. Um, yeah, I was uh, listening to Catherine uh, talk about that and wondering, you know, what do I do? Because I definitely deal with uh, self-doubt a lot and uh, rejection just because in the, as a speaker, I'm, I'm getting no's when, you know, re requesting for speaking engagements and things like that, that, you know, don't go the way that I would like it. So some of it is to recognize that um, it's not me, um, my work, uh, if someone says no to my work, it's not, they're not saying no to me as an individual and as a, uh, about my worth. Um, when I do get caught in it, um, I really, um, do, I practice mindfulness. I really do my best so that I am watching the thoughts and watching whether I'm identifying with the feeling and the thoughts or whether I'm able to witness them. And sometimes when I get hooked into them, because usually it hooks an old story or triggers trauma or something, that's when I need to get back into my body. And so getting out of my head and literally sort of feeling uh, my feet on the ground, literally I will be wiggling my toes in certain parts of the time of the day <laughs> because I'm not feeling so secure in myself. And so, um, you know, feeling, um, you know, what does it feel like inside my thighs and um, my arms and things like that. So, um, and also setting myself up for success. So the things that I know, whether I feel successful for, even if it's outside the creative realm, like going for a run, I always feel like, yeah, I can, I can, I can do this. This is okay. Mm -hmm. I just, I ran for 30 minutes. That's great. I'm yeah. 52 years old. Awesome. And, um, so those kind of things where I do things that I, I know that I can experience a sense of achievement and that often helps me move out of self-doubt and that feeling of rejection. Adiba? <laughs> Um, I don't have an answer. Okay, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, I'm not good at rejection. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've had to face a little bit of rejection, mostly not for my writing, because I haven't submitted anything, but, you know, nobody wants to date me. No, I'm joking, but no. <laughs> um, I, mostly for, like, the podcast. Like I'll send out something nobody will answer. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I don't really think about it because probably because it's on Twitter. So I'm like, yeah, they probably get a lot of stuff and I, they don't know me from anybody. So thank you for saying yes to me, you guys. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs>
And I, I don't know. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be very good at rejection either, Diva. But I'm definitely, like I said, taking notes. I will be re-listening to this episode for the first time because I hate re-listening to episodes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. that good. <laughs> I, I just, I try not to ingest it. I probably, because I am who I am, I'm just like, whatever y'all need to know. <laughs> y'all need know. How do you deal with imposter syndrome? That's another thing I know. (laughs) I see all writers talking about it all the time, and I'm like, "Thank you. This is this is my number one." I just feel like I'm like I'm not. I can't write. I can barely write a sentence sometimes. And what do you? How do you deal with it? Me, it's really hard. Like I'm not even gonna lie. I I usually have to call on friends to just like kind of talk me down off the mountain and um remind me that like no my shit's good like I deserve to be here I'm not crazy like there's a reason but it's hard it's it's a struggle it's a big huge struggle especially like if I know that I have a speaking engagement coming up. Mm-hmm. That's when I really probably struggle most because mm-hmm. I kind of get like you were like these people don't know me. They don't know what I have to say, um, but obviously they do if they asked me to come. But it's 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 just a mental mind game and it's really difficult. I haven't figured out the cure all for it. Hmm. And that's so interesting because, like, on the outside, it's epitome of awesomeness. You, you're giving talks. You, you're, people care about what you say, but you're just in turmoil on the inside that yeah. people wouldn't even know. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Victoria? Oh, God. Because, <laughs> um, like, when I was thinking about, you know, when I was talking about rejection and doubt, it's not like I've got that licked, right? It's like, uh-huh. oh, it, it, sort of those are my roommates in my head all the time. So <laughs> um, similar to, and, you know, at one point I thought, I don't have imposter syndrome. And I realized it's because it was like the air that I was breathing until I recognized, oh, Oh, that's imposter syndrome? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what that is. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that, that, that's, like, I thought that was just what everybody deals with all the time. So um, I think part of it is actually naming it, like recognizing that it's, that I, that that's just part of what I, my experience is where, you know, it comes from not feeling good enough, not feeling like I'm, you know, I'm comparing my insides with somebody's outsides. And like, you know, we live in a, in a curated Instagram world, right? So like, mm-hmm. of course, you're I'm like, if I look at anything social media, I'm going to feel like an imposter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and you look at my website and I've got this happy face and it looks like, oh my God, I've got it all together. And it's all about <laughs> wellness and, you know, da 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 bipolar princess. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, on a good day yeah for sure but you know on you know 50 percent of the days i'm like you know well you know neurotic and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, so um i think sometimes just like what uh 
Diva is talking about is just actually being real about it and being really authentic. And there's, I find it so refreshing when I can get together and not quite doing a, like a, you know, I don't know if I can say it, but like a, a, a bitch session, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, a session where I can just really talk about how I'm feeling and how the struggle and like the fact that it is a hard road to be human man like it is not easy you know like and no one gets off easy I don't care how much money you have or how much like whatever it's some people have it harder for sure but um just the fact that we have uh, our like a head that can reflect on ourselves (laughs) is a Mm -hmm. problem so to me, that's how I deal with it is about talking, particularly with my girlfriends who we just commiserate together and we have a laugh about it and, and it somehow puts things in perspective and it feels like things, you know, there's a, a season of everything. So it'll, it'll get better um, and it'll get worse and then it'll get better and then it'll get worse. And so that's, that's sort of how I feel like I deal with it. You finally put a name to it for me. A bitch yeah. bitch bitch session. I can't speak. Yeah. That, I do that at least once a day. <laughs> my my support system, my mom and my my um boyfriend, they're tired of it cuz I'm just like, yeah. oh yeah. my gosh, this is blah blah blah. blah. Yeah, you have to have a strong, a, a big enough social support network that you can sort of like spread it around a bit. Yeah. <laughs> if you target it to one person, which my husband knows, it's just going to like drain that relationship really fast. Yeah, yeah. dang it. <laughs> it's going to be reciprocal. Um, I pretty much agree with what you guys have been saying is that basically to own it. Um, Sometimes um, I look at it as kind of the same way I tell people when they feel certain emotions is sometimes you just have to say, okay, this is what I'm feeling today. The, the doubt fairy has visited me today. I hate that bitch, but okay, she's visited <laughs> me today. <laughs> um, I love that. <laughs> I think I might um, have to like cite you on that. I love that, the doubt fairy. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but I, I think for me, it's um, that's when... You know, I, I call on my support group is when I, I look at past successes that I've had and, you know, just kind of say to myself, you know, OK, it's OK to feel some doubt. It's OK to feel um, to feel some re- rejection and sad. And a um, long time ago, somebody told me, consider doubt a good thing because you cannot have doubt if you have no faith. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, if you have if you have a little doubt in yourself, it also means you have faith in yourself. Yeah. You know, I've seen some people who are just like, they are super confident, but not like a good confident, kind of more like a, a arrogant confident. And it's just like, okay, like, how is that person confident in this when I can't even be confident when I know my stuff is good, you know? If you're feeling yourself too much sometimes, it's like, dang, if you can, I can't. <laughs> but uh, what's your recommended self-care? Um, for me, I look at it as, um, well, for one, um, I definitely think everybody should have a list of, you know, their coping skills. I think everybody needs one. And I don't believe you can have too many. Um, 
But my main one is actually out of the seven days of the week, I pick one day where I don't have work, where I am not allowed to do anything additional. That is a day just to do for me, you know, whether whatever it is I want to do. If I want to spend the day and loaf around in bed, that's <laughs> um, I usually don't. But um, just one day where I don't have to like worry about doing chores or work or things like that. Um, I know for people that have like children, they probably can't take a whole day, but definitely take out a couple of hours, you know, mm-hmm. or something. Make some kind of arrangement so that you have a little bit of time where you where you can just unwind and do whatever it is you need to do to relax and whatever that is. And there's no there's no wrong relaxation technique unless it's, you know, dangerous or illegal. Um, but, um, you know, I have, I've had clients, their relaxation technique is to tear up paper into the smallest they can get it. And I'm like, that works for you. Go for it. Um, so for me, it's finding, slotting out some time. And I tell people the same thing. Um, every time they bring it up, well, I don't, I don't have the time for it. I'm like, do you find time to eat? Do you find time to take a shower? Yes. This is just as important. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Victoria? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be more um, because it's around oftentimes people have a, a starvation relationship with time. Um, I'd encourage people to find things, think in terms of what recharges them and what recharges. And when I say that, I mean, recharges their energy. And so I think we all do that differently. I think some people need to be around people. Some people need to uh, withdraw and go into, you know, uh, uh, their cave and cocoon. Um, For me, it's physical. Like if I run, I get energized and I feel strong and I feel confident. Um, I think other people, it's relaxing and just reading a good book or, or whatever. So, and and ideally, we can pick things that take different amounts of time so that especially if you are a parent or you're juggling elder care with, you know, a full-time job or something, that we can find something that's 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, a half a day, and a full day. So we have like a buffet to choose from. Um, and so that's what I've tried to, to work in for myself. And so I know certain things that really recharge me like going out in nature is a huge is is a really big big thing for me and so sometimes it's just standing and looking at a tree literally or watching the birds or listening to the birds other times it's be if I have enough time to walk and hike a trail or something um so finding out what really um amps your energy up and and honor that and then find different um lengths of time Adiba um my best self-care honestly as much as i love a hotel room i think i love just a dark movie theater more than anything oh wow that's really like that's the bee's knees for me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. although i the other day I went to the movie theater and i was the only woman in the theater and that was really nerving what movie was it? Um, it was movie The Kitchen with Tiffany Haddish oh. and Melissa McCarthy. It was literally a theater full of dudes. Really? Um, 
Mm -hmm. And that is really strange because it's a, like a, a female empowered movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All men. It was at night and I was very uncomfortable. So yeah. that yeah. was um, definitely not good for self-care. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that was kind of a self-care backfire. Um, if, if there was any movie you thought you you would think yeah. it would be that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not so much. Not right. so much. I'm sorry. Um, but typically that is I that even then a hotel. That and a good massage. Like if I could go to the movies and then go to a massage, that'd be the perfect day. When if I get rich, I got you. I'm going to take you to a movie. <laughs> it's not a cheap date, man. No cheap date. <laughs> All right. That is the end of my questions for you. Could you please take a final moment to promote yourself in any of your work, Adiba? Um, I have my children's book, Meet Clara Balbo, with the theme being inclusion. Uh, the main character is a little girl with disabilities and can do all the things that you can do uh, because she's Claire Bell, but she's just like you. And you can find it on Amazon, but it's better if you just go to the website, www.clarabellblue.com. Um, you can catch the documentary, The Full Nelson, um, on YouTube, just YouTube, Adiba Nelson, The Full Nelson. Um, and also my TED Talk is on YouTube as well. So Okay. Um, well, I'm currently still working on my debut novel. Um, if all goes well, it should be released next year, hopefully in the fall. Um, it's a adult fantasy novel um, with a bunch of children from different, um, different cultures coming together and trying to figure out how they're going to, how they're going to essentially um, figure out their past when they find out everything they've been told is a lie. Um, mm. so that's what I'm working on right now. You can also find me on YouTube. I have my author tube channel where I, uh, give my take on writing tips, um, all with the psychology, um, kind of, uh, angle to it. It's also where I've started my series on dissecting character tropes. So, um, so far I've done, the uh, irredeemable villain. I've done the took a level and badass trope. So um, you can you can find me on YouTube, Cat Bowser Fantasy Therapist. Uh, yeah, you can. Um, if you're interested in seeing um, the plays that I've written and performed, you can go to my website, and they're available for download. Uh, VictoriaMaxwell.com. And also, I offer sort of uh, what I call raise the roof creativity consulting. So. Uh, both wellness and creativity. So if people are interested, I can um, give a 50% off to anybody that's listening. And uh, the easiest way to do that is just maybe to email me um, at victoria at victoriamaxwell.com. And I can um, just send the, the coupon code if people are interested. We can work through anything, whether someone's feeling stuck in where they are or wanting to talk more about mental health and creativity, that how they intersect. All right. All right. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm going to be looking at Adiba's documentary again, showing my mom we're going to cry <laughs> together. It's going to be great. <laughs> I'm totally watching Catherine's YouTube channel. I'm going to, oh, this, this is going to be so juicy. I can't wait. 
And Victoria, thank you so much. I I need to run, so I'm probably going to just think about you. Like, if Victoria said that this helps her, I am going to run. <laughs> Exercise Valencia. Gosh darn it. <laughs> thank and the you best so way to much. Do it- the best way is actually if you can run with a girlfriend and have a bitch session. So that's oh like that, that tackles everything. I think you I think you just made everything in my life align with that. <laughs> <laughs> Tackling two birds with one stone. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you.